Everyone likes a superhero who swoops in and saves the day. They fight for justice and avenge the evildoers. It's a storyline that sells. But the day humanity was saved nearly 2,000 years ago, as Jesus hung on a cross, the narrative got flipped. And it began with a prayer. Jesus' prayer for them is really a mandate for us. It is a mandate as to how we as disciples of Jesus are to live, love, and forgive the them. Welcome to Simple Truths for Life with Charles Tapp. Here, we hope you'll find answers to some of life's everyday struggles. You can learn more by visiting simpletruthsforlife.org. Today, Charles Tapp concludes his series, The Prayers of Jesus, A Window into the Heart of God, by examining the words of Jesus in his darkest moment with his message, A Prayer for Them. As we received over the last several weeks this series on the prayers of Jesus, we have finally come to the last message in this series, and I feel that just as I did at the beginning of each of those messages, that I, that I need to share something with you that bears repeating. And that is simply this, that although this is and has been a series on the prayers of Jesus, and although throughout this series we focus on prayers that he actually prayed to his Father, Hopefully by now it has become apparent that this series is not about prayer as much as it is about Jesus providing us with a window into the heart of God because of the conversations that he had with his Father. It is through Jesus' interaction with the Father that you and I are able to get a glimpse into the character of God as well as into the nature of God. When we looked at part one, we dealt with the prayer, if you remember, in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus is thanking his Father for the fact that he has hidden certain things from the foolish and the so-called wise and gave them to the weak, the humble, we are given a glimpse into just how gracious and how merciful our Heavenly Father is. In part two, we examine the prayer of Jesus in John 12, where he asked that the Father's glory be allowed to shine on him. And it is through this prayer we see a God who is not only willing to entrust his glory with his son, but he's also willing to trust that same glory even with fallen humanity like me and you. And in part three, the prayer of Gethsemane, we see a God here who is sovereign. We see a God who is always in control regardless of how bleak the situation may be or how dark the future may appear. Because with God, there is no future. God always lives in 
the present. You and I have a future, but with God, even the future is present, which means then nothing, Larry, catches God off guard. Aren't you glad for that? As I tell my students here, God is never faced with a dilemma, a situation between two equally undesirable alternatives. Or as my mother used to say, God bless her soul, God is never caught between a rock and a hard place. Amen? Amen. But in each of these prayers that we've been taking a look at, they have given us insight. They've given us a window into the heart of God. But this prayer, I believe, does so more with more clarity than any of the other prayers. For the prayer of Jesus that will be our focus for today's message is that which he prayed while his life was yet slipping away as he was fastened to a Roman cross. But before we take a look at the prayer itself, I think we would be remiss if we didn't pause for a moment and reflect upon the magnitude and the meaning of the cross itself. And although today the cross is the central universal symbol of the Christian faith, this was not always the case. In the early centuries of Christianity in the time of Christ, there were other symbols that represented the Christian faith, such as the dove or a ship, and even an anchor. All of these served as symbols. But what was probably the best known symbol of early Christianity was that of a fish. A fish used as a somewhat secret sign that you were a believer. And that was a good thing because it let others know that you were a believer. And that's important because in Jesus' day and even after Christ's time, in the early years of Christianity, you could lose your life. I'm not talking about losing your job. You could lose your life if you were found out to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So this was a sign that they would use. They would put it on their doorpost. Many today, you see the bumper stickers on the car of the fish. I don't even think some of the folk who have those bumper stickers on their cars have any idea what it means. They just like the way it looked. And all of that is important because to be a follower of Jesus, you had to have a sign, the sign of the fish. But with all this deep symbolism of this fish, in the early years of Christianity throughout the New Testament, we see that a fish had very powerful meaning to it for the Christian. For instance, you remember how Jesus fed over 5,000 men, women, and children with five loaves and how many fish? Just two fish. And you remember when Jesus called the men to become his disciples, he said, I'm going to make you what? Fishers of men. Even the dragnet was used to symbolize being a Christian, which represented bringing all types of believers into the boat. And who can forget that when Jesus was resurrected, one of the meetings that he had with his disciples, he cooked them what? Fish. 
I'm going to pause here for a moment. He cooked his disciples, and they had a fish dinner. Now, I have a sanctified imagination. And I just wonder, how did Jesus prepare the fish? Was it baked fish? Was it fried fish? Was it steamed fish? Dr. McFarlane, was it red snapper fixed in the Escovitch style? <laughs> and if it was, did they have any festival? You don't even know what I'm talking about this morning. You think Jesus just threw together some fish? Oh, no. I believe he took time and prepared that fish. Jesus ate fish. Now, let me move on. And although the cross now serves as this universal sign of Christianity, historians believe that it did not become this iconic symbol until somewhere around the fourth century. And the reason for that is, you've got to understand this, the cross had a lot of negative baggage that came along with it. For the cross was this instrument used to execute criminals while shaming them at the same time because they were crucified naked. And to be crucified meant that you would experience not an immediate death, but it was one that was slowly drawn out. It was a patient, protracted process which already added to the painful experience of having one's hand and feet nailed to the cross. But lest we forget that it was Jesus himself who first mentions the cross in a positive light. In speaking of his imminent death in John chapter 12 and verse 32, Jesus turned to his disciples and said, and I, if I be what? Lifted up, referring to the cross, I will draw all men to me. You see, it was Jesus who took the idea of the cross as this notorious symbol of suffering and shame reserved for the vilest of criminals and through his own death transformed it to become this powerful symbol of rescue and redemption, not for some, but for all mankind. Who says amen to that today? And it was while he was dying on this cruel instrument of torture and death that Jesus prayed this very powerful prayer in Luke 23, verses 33 and verse 34. Look at what it says. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Gives a perspective here. Look at verse 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what? What they do. Now, if you read this section on Jesus on the cross, you'll discover that there are actually three prayers that Jesus prayed. The one that we just mentioned but then there's the second prayer where, where Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? And this second prayer has the distinction of being the only recorded prayer of Jesus where he did not approach his God Father as Father, but he simply cried out, my God, my God. And then the last prayer that we find that Jesus prayed while he was on the cross where he says, Father, in, into your hands I, I commend my spirit. And by praying this prayer, Jesus is expressing not only his confidence, but he's also expressing his assurance that the mission that he was given, that the mission that he started, he has now successfully completed. One noted theologian puts it this way. He says that the Jesus' last words serve as a commentary not only on the death of Jesus, but these prayers, these, these words in this last prayer also serve as a commentary on the life of Jesus. Now let's go back as we examine this first prayer again. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. But before we take a look at why Jesus asked forgiveness for those who have placed him on the cross and, and why he appears to absolve them from any culpability for their actions, I want us to ask this all-important question today, and that is this. Who is Jesus referring to when he says, Father, forgive them? In other words, what I'm asking you is, who is the them that Jesus is making reference to? I'm sure for some it's quite obvious it has to be the Roman soldiers that nailed him to the cross. Or maybe it was Pontius Pilate, the governor, who convicted Jesus and sentenced him. Maybe it was the gutless Herod, king of Galilee, who put together a kangaroo court to find Jesus guilty. But then what about those closest to Jesus? What about the disciples? Could he be talking about them as well? Could he be talking about Peter who denied him? Could he be talking of uh, denied him? Could he be talking about Judas who betrayed him and all the other disciples who deserted him? But does it really end here? I submit to you today that this them that Jesus is talking about here transcends this group that I just mentioned and extends itself to all those who stood back and watch this awful scene unfold and did absolutely nothing to change it, to intervene, to do anything about it. And some of them who were in that group just a week earlier as Jesus was, was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means Lord, save us as they laid palm branches and their clothes at his feet. Talking about the them. You're listening to Simple Truths for Life with Charles Tapp and his message, A Prayer for Them. And if you're enjoying this message or you'd like to find others like it, you can find out more by visiting simpletruthsforlife.org. We'll conclude with the rest of his message right after this. 
to take a moment and just recommend that you breathe. Now, there are all kinds of breathing techniques that you can use. One is count to 10, you know, breathing in, count to 10, breathing out, kind of hold it in the middle, you know, breathing in his grace and breathing out his praise. Whatever you choose, breath is really important. And this time of year, you know, you may have a cold or you may have the flu and it's restricting your breathing. So you know just how important that is. God has given you that breath. In Acts, Paul wrote this, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And so take a moment and take a deep breath and stay encouraged. To get more encouraging content, go to WGTS919.com. This is Simple Truths for Life. And this week, Charles Tapp examines the prayer of Jesus in his darkest moment and explains how this is the defining example of how his followers should live. As he concludes his message, a prayer for them. Several years ago, I I heard a story on the news where a woman was fatally, brutally attacked in her neighborhood right outside her apartment late one evening. And when the authorities came to question those who lived in her apartment building, they asked, did you hear anything or see anything strange last night? And to their surprise, many of them who lived in her apartment building said, yes, we did hear a woman crying out for help. We did hear a woman screaming at the top of her voice. So the policeman responded by saying, well, well, why didn't you call 911? Why didn't you do something? And you know already what they said. Well, we didn't what? Want to get involved. Her life could have potentially been saved, but because those who were there, who saw, who heard, refused to get involved, This poor woman lost her life because they stood back and did nothing. I love what John Stuart Mill says. He says, bad men, listen to this, bad men need nothing more to compass their ends than that good men should look on and do nothing. And what I believe Mills is saying here is that much evil prevails in our world today, not because evil is so powerful as it is because many who are good stand by and do absolutely nothing because they just don't want to get involved. And as I thought about it this week, and especially this morning as I was sitting at my desk, I I could not help but wonder, am I part of the them that Jesus is referring to? Am I not willing to intervene in Jesus' behalf? And what about the church? What about us? Are we complicit in the fact that we too don't want to get involved? Now, I'm not a mind reader, but 
I believe I know what many of you are thinking right now, and that is, Pastor, what are you talking about? None of us was, were alive when Jesus was here on earth. We couldn't have gotten involved. Really? I'm going to make my point today with Jesus' own words. Remember what he said? When you have done it to the what? Least of these. You have done it unto me. Who are the least of these? Those who don't possess the political, economical, sociological might to fight the forces that oppress them. So I ask the church today, what are we doing to protect and defend our children? What are we doing to protect our elderly? What are we doing to protect the poor and the disenfranchised from the forces that seek to oppress them? Are we part of the them today? But instead of possessing a vindictive spirit, look at what Jesus says about the them, those who didn't get involved, those who did get involved, and the reason why he was on the cross. He didn't say, Father, give me justice. He didn't say, Father, rain down fire from heaven. Aren't you glad you're not God? If you were God, a whole lot less people would be here today. But instead of possessing a vindictive spirit, Jesus uttered these profound words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In other words, what Jesus was really saying here, if they really understood the magnitude of what was involved here, I don't think they would be participating. So forgive them, Father, for they really don't understand the magnitude of their actions. And isn't it the same way with us today? When we hurt people, or if people hurt us, do we really understand how powerful our actions have been to harm these individuals? Are we really cognizant of the fact of how much pain our actions, and yes, even our words, have brought into someone's life? Listen, Jesus' prayer for them is really a mandate for us. It is a mandate as to how we as disciples of Jesus are to live, love, and forgive the them in our lives. Even, even if the them is us. I want to share with you this quote by one of the great emperors, Marcus Aurelius. He was known as the last of the five great emperors. After reading this, you would think it was written for today. Look at what he said. He said, today you will meet all kinds of unpleasant people. What will they do? They will what? Hurt you and what? Injure you and insult you, what? But you cannot live like that. You cannot treat people the way people treat you. But Marcus Aurelius says you cannot live like that. Why? You know better. Amen? 
You know better, for you are a man in whom the Spirit of God dwells. So when Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, it wasn't just an act of grace on the part of Jesus. It was a mandate for his followers to follow his lead. Jesus says, love your enemies, love them. Doesn't mean you have to feel this warm fuzzy toward them. I have never felt a warm fuzzy toward an enemy. Oh, there's my enemy. I've never felt that. But the love he's talking about here is this principled love. As Douglas Cooper said in his book, Living God's Love, in page 26, he says, loving is using one's God-given power of choice to do or to say that which is in the best good or interest of another, regardless of how you feel. So Jesus says, treat the them, those who have harmed you, the way I treat you. Because guess what? You have harmed me. Look at what John Stott says. He says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Wow. So I'm part of the them. We're part of the them. And Jesus says, forgive them, which means forgive you. Forgive me, because we really don't understand what we are doing. Pastor, what about justice? You're always talking about justice. You're right. The Bible talks about justice. But here's a part of justice that many times is hard for us to swallow. Just like the kingdom of God, we will not see in its fullness that Jesus comes because justice is a principle of the kingdom of God, we will not receive justice in its fullest form until Jesus returns. And why is that important to understand? Because if we're waiting for everything to be right, fair, and just, we will be prisoners in our own past, holding on to the past hurts and harms that folk have brought into our lives. So what does Jesus tell us to do in his own prayer? He says, pray this way, forgive them. Forgive them. And in forgiving them, we're setting ourselves free. Listen, Jesus in pleading for the forgiveness of those who were in one way or another responsible for his crucifixion, is in no way excusing their role as being part of this shameful act. But what his prayer does is that it gives us a window into the heart of a loving God who is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all might have eternal life. And it is this view into the heart of God that should not only provide us with a sense of hope, talking about the them, that's me, that's you. But it should also compel us to follow his lead, to follow his example. Well, here's the clincher today. 
Who's the them in your life? Who's harmed you? Who's hurt you? Better yet, you may be somebody's them. Who have you hurt? Who have you harmed? The same goes for both. Forgive them. That's important because Jesus said in his model prayer that our willingness to forgive the them, the others who have harmed us, is inextricably tied to God's willingness to forgive us. So if I want to be forgiven by God, I've got to forgive the them regardless of who the them is. Jesus said, forgive them because that's how I treat you. Because believe it or not, you're part of the them as well. And so am I. But when Jesus prayed those words, he gave us a glimpse into the window of the heart of God. While he's yet dying on a cross, he could have easily rained down fire from heaven, but he said, forgive them. And that's how he wants us to live. You've been listening to Simple Truths for Life with Charles Tapp and his message, A Prayer for Them. And if you want to listen again or share it with someone, you can find these messages on platforms like Apple Podcasts and now also on Spotify. Or visit us online at simpletruthsforlife.org. Now here's what we're working on for next week. How many of you, especially going through some very difficult and trying times in your life, is one thing to hear, God is with you, but can you imagine if Jesus came and sat beside you? Next week, Charles Tapp begins a brand new series of messages to help you find that thing that may be missing in your faith journey as he shares part one of going deeper, reaching wider, experiencing the presence and power of the Holy Spirit with his message, The Missing Link.